Hello and welcome to the Addiction Practice Pod. I'm Dr. Roland Engelbrecht. And I'm David Ball. This is a podcast of the BC Echo and Substance Use, about substance use care and treatment. Addiction Practice Pod is produced on the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. In saying this, we note that the ongoing criminalization, discrimination, and institutionalization against people who use drugs disproportionately harms Indigenous peoples. Ending drug-related harms means addressing racism and colonialism. I'm Dr. Roland Ingebrecht. I'm a family physician and addiction medicine specialist. I'm also a member of the Canadian Alcohol Use Disorder Society that seeks to improve and support the care of patients with alcohol use disorder. Joining me today as co-host is David Ball, who you remember from season one. Hi, David. Hi, Roland. And as people may remember, I'm a journalist and have reported for a decade about substance use, public health policies, and mental health. And it's really good to be back. As return listeners already know, this is a podcast for healthcare providers. We'll be hearing from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experience about approaches to substance use care that actually work. In this episode, we're talking to Dr. Bernie Pauly about treatment and care for alcohol use disorder. And we'll also hear from Jennifer Cottell, a member of the Family and Caregivers Committee with the BC Centre on Substance Use. She'll share her lived experience supporting loved ones with alcohol use disorder. Joining us first is Dr. Bernie Pauly. Dr. Pauly is a scientist at the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research and Professor of Nursing at the University of Victoria. As part of her work, she focuses on improving approaches to alcohol policy and harm reduction, including through managed alcohol programs. To start out, Dr. Pauly, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? How did you come to be doing this research that you're doing? I really started doing research that looked at access to healthcare, and I was really interested in how do we provide safe and equitable access to healthcare, particularly for people that are impacted uh, by homelessness and who often have difficulty even sometimes getting to healthcare, for example. And that was where I started in my research career with during my PhD. But that was really inspired by when I had worked as an emergency nurse many years before that. And I saw the challenges that many different groups of people face when they try to access healthcare in an emergency. And I was really distressed, particularly by the way that people were treated, particularly when they came in, if they had substance use issues, if they were experiencing an overdose. And I saw a lot of dismissing of those concerns. I saw a lot of treatment that for me did not fit with safe, respectful, non-judgmental care, which is laid out really in our nursing code of ethics in terms of how we treat people with respect and dignity. And that was more than 20 years ago, but it still kind of it still drives me today because we still have research that highlights some of the challenges that people use substances face when they access care. So in my PhD, I didn't actually want to look at all those problems because there's been a lot of research on that. What I wanted to look at is what can we do in the community to provide more safe and appropriate care for people who use substances? 
how as primary care providers, can we have safer, more compassionate conversations about alcohol use with our patients? That's a great question because um, talking about any kind of substance use is often difficult and challenging because in society, we have so much stigma around substance use and, and it's stigma around both legal and illicit substances. So with alcohol, we sort of have this image of alcohol as something that, yes, we can do with moderation, safer drinking guidelines, but when it moves outside of kind of increase in amount or consumption of increased frequency, those start to become more difficult conversations, right? And healthcare providers often don't have the resources. So there's a lot of work been done on what's called screening and brief intervention, which is just a way of talking with people uh, who come into primary care or who come into an emergency department where the healthcare provider may be aware that alcohol uh, consumption has changed or it's somehow affecting what's happening with this individual. And I think in order to have those conversations well, in addition to the tools and resources, I think we as nurses and doctors need a very deep understanding of the fact that substance use is most frequently a response. And there's something else that is the problem or at the root of, of the problem. I wondered if you could talk a bit about harm reduction, if you could sort of introduce the concept as it applies to alcohol, because I know we've, we talk a lot about that with opioid use disorder, but how would that fit into the alcohol spectrum in terms of treatment? I'm going to start with how, how do I understand harm reduction and how is it defined? So harm reduction focuses on preventing the harms of use. It doesn't necessarily require abstinence. It doesn't necessarily require reduction in use, but you know, particularly around illicit substances, we often talk about safer use, which can be a various different kinds of strategies from clean supplies to safe places to inject, for example. We don't talk as much about alcohol harm reduction. And I would say that's an area that we need to talk more about and understand better. How do we prevent the harms of alcohol use specifically, and what do harm reduction interventions look like in relation to alcohol? Our dominant approach has been abstinence and a focus on withdrawal and treatment. So we have that, but we also recognize that not every individual is willing or able or ready or even possible for them to move into that aspect of services. So how do we prevent harms? And we can start very simply and think about safer drinking guidelines. Those would be an example of alcohol harm reduction. We also have some gaps. And one of the gaps that we identified in alcohol harm reduction was around the fact that there are individuals who can't afford safe sources of alcohol, even at that sort of sweet spot pricing often combined with lack of housing. And so we have harms related to drinking outside, to, to drinking non-beverage. And that's where alcohol harm reduction strategies like managed alcohol programs come into the picture as part of this broader spectrum. 
of services. That's a great uh, transition because our next question is about managed alcohol use and some of those programs. Can you just introduce the concept of the managed alcohol program to listeners who don't know about it and talk maybe about what the findings have been with these? Managed alcohol programs in Canada started in kind of the late 90s. I think much of harm reduction begins with what I would call very pragmatic responses. We recognize that there's harms that are happening. How do we reduce those harms? And in this case, what was recognized is that not only if we allowed people to come into the shelter, they didn't have to be sober and they could store their alcohol while they stayed in the shelter. They didn't have to give it up. What people recognized in a very compassionate, pragmatic way is that if they also provided people with a safe um, source of alcohol in a way that supported them to manage their alcohol better, that would be a way of reducing harms like freezing uh, to death, reduce assaults and injuries, and that it could also reduce things like binge drinking and drinking unsafe sources of alcohol, like, like non-beverage alcohol, we call it. These are things like, like mouthwash that are not meant for consumption. So that kind of was how it got started. And, and communities recognized that there was a group of people for which there were not harm reduction programs for, and they had been through treatment many times. They were also oftentimes very vulnerable because of being outside and also being picked up by police. And, and so these policing and emergency departments, hospitalizations, those are kind of very expensive and ineffective ways to respond to this. The managed alcohol program concept and really spread. And we now have about probably more than 23 programs in Canada. I'm not sure we have one in every province, but we have certainly multiple programs in Ontario. There are programs in Saskatchewan. There's programs in BC. There's a really exciting, I think, an impressive peer-led program in the downtown east side called the Community Managed Alcohol Program. It's run by peers for peers where they make their own alcohol. And it was really a way of filling that gap around alcohol harm reduction in that community. So that program looks quite different than, for example, some of the residential programs in Ontario, for example, where people have either temporary or permanent um, housing, where they're provided with a safe source of alcohol through the day. There's kind of four pillars of most programs. One of them is some type of housing, the provision of a safe supply of alcohol, providing health supports like primary care, for example, most programs are connected to, to either a doctor or a nurse practitioner who can provide some of the primary care and then a social and cultural component as well, because it's finding other interests, other things for people to do that they can pursue as well as providing that human connection and that kind of social um, support. So those kind of programs we've done a lot of research on and we call them community-based programs and the outcomes have been that people actually tend to drink less which ultimately contributes to fewer harms and so when you know providers are thinking about how do i actually do this 
what I think about is just starting with that basic recognition of someone as a person. That can be as simple as I know your name, knowing their name, calling them by name. And those things are so simple, yet when you live in such a highly stigmatized world, those things are profound. And they're a way of starting the relationship and they're a way of giving respect and they're a way of seeing people as people in a world where people are often very depersonalized and very dehumanized. And providers have said, sometimes will say, well, that takes too much time. I'm like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> that takes seconds because you know what? Once you do that, your ability to give care just goes up exponentially. And you start building that relationship of trust where people are going to be much more engaged in care with you. And it's actually going to make your job easier. Thanks so much, Dr. Polly, for helping kind of map out the world of managed alcohol programs and harm reduction today. It's, it's really fascinating and lots of areas of future research, it sounds like. Yeah, thank you very much. It was really interesting talking to you today. Thanks so much for inviting me. Really appreciate it. Dr. Bernie Pauly is a scientist at the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, and she's also a professor at the University of Victoria School of Nursing. Finally today, we're going to be hearing from Jennifer Cattell. Jennifer has witnessed the painful impacts of alcohol's use disorder on families and relationships in multiple ways. She's a member of the Family and Caregivers Committee at BCCSU, and she's fighting for better care and policy around alcohol use disorder. She's sharing her story in the hope of building a supportive community for other loved ones supporting people with alcohol use disorder. Alcohol use disorder has been quite prevalent in historically in both sides of my family, both on my mother's and my father's side. And growing up, my father was what you would consider a functioning alcoholic. He worked full time, but enjoyed several um, beers when he would come home or first thing in the morning, which led to my father having some abusive behaviors. He could be quite mean and controlling and abusive quite verbally and emotionally. So I, I landed up leaving home at 12 and kind of subconsciously repeating that cycle and looking for uh, love and approval through men. I was attaching myself to other men that were quite like-minded and were also struggling with alcohol. I then went on to have a partner that I married after five years. And in the beginning of our relationship, you know, we drank socially. And as time progressed, we would drink a little bit more going through the years to the point where it would be two or three drinks a night. But those drinks might consist of a half a glass of vodka or whiskey and, and the rest would be topped up. I did notice eventually that there was a whole lot more every day on the way home. He would ask, you know, what would you like to drink tonight, whiskey or vodka? And whatever I chose, he'd come home and it would usually be a 2-6, sometimes a 40. And I, I started noticing little things. I really wanted to be sure 
the things that I was seeing. And maybe there was a little bit of denial there at first, or I would just kind of pass it off. But I started finding, when I took notice and paid attention and brought it to his attention, rather, that perhaps we don't need to have a bottle every night. But it was still happening. And then I would notice little things like, he wouldn't let me make the drinks anymore because I was making comments. And so he started making the drinks. And then I would notice that we might only have two drinks in that evening. And I would see that the bottle was half gone in two drinks. I wasn't feeling anything. So I know that mine were not very strong at all. But for the third to be that much gone out of the bottle, obviously it was going in his glasses. to the point where I would then make comments. It progressed quite quickly. It also led to him having some additional behaviors. He was having affairs and his behavior was beginning to be quite erratical. I did feel like there were some other things, I, you know, I believe that there was some other use going on to combat his alcohol use, to be able to have him function for work, etc. I would start coming home, he would he would be missing work. He would say he was sick, there would be vomit in the sink. I would find a glass by the bedside and smell it. It would look like water, but it was full strength vodka. And when I would question, of course, he would um, place blame and usually maybe not directly blame, but kind of guide me towards my teen son. Eventually, my son was asked to leave. And again, Sorry, I no longer have a good, uh, a good relationship with my son. The fact that he really hasn't spoken to me for many years, a lot of that was due to the dynamics of the family and what was happening and the blame that I placed on him when I actually came to realize that it was my husband that was doing it. I'm not a stranger to behaviors and the cycles and what alcohol use disorder can create. And having also worked in this sector for a very large time, I knew that I couldn't save him and I couldn't make him change and I couldn't fix it. But yet at the same time, I still found myself going through those motions. I knew I was gonna have to leave. And the harder I tried, the worse it became. I don't know if there was an actual specific incident that just made me finally put the motion, like things in motion to go. When he knew that I was leaving, I packed a little uh, suitcase and it had all my notes that I had been saving for a lawyer. I'd contacted a lawyer and I was so petrified. I just didn't know how to get out. And I was scared for myself and my children. I mustered up the strength and I had rented a place and, and not told him. And of course, I have no money. So there was a lot of support, both through agency and family and friends, to help me get out. I now know from my history and with my smaller children and, and as they grew up, what had happened, the last thing I wanted was for these four children to be in this environment that was so toxic. People often ask, in, you know, women, why did you stay so long? Whatever kind of abusive relationship you might be in. And I think the answer to that is people on the outside looking and don't understand that safety is measured in so many different ways. And safety can mean financially, emotionally, and of course your physical. There's so many different ways. I am doing tremendous today. 
I have made leaps and bounds, I have to say. It's taken a lot and clearly you can hear in my voice that it's still affects me greatly and probably will for a very long time. Policy and change and education is most important for both sides, both the person that is struggling and for the family, the loved ones. And we need more. <laughs> I can't stress that enough. We need more services, maybe even more some funded services. We all know that alcohol use disorder is one of the number one largest killers out of most diseases out there. Yet it is legal. It is not recognized like the others, which is part of the problem. I reached out and supported mostly on just a few of my closest friends in the beginning. I feel like something there needs to change. And I have spoken with doctors. And again, because, you know, of being on the family committee, we have those conversations. And one of the doctors did agree that, it, you know, he even said at one point, you know, I believe it also needs to change. And somehow family members or loved ones need to be brought in on board to help make a healthy plan because all, most of the time the person struggling is not so forthcoming and willing to admit how far their problem has gone. And so then it makes it really difficult to put a care plan in place without that honesty. And it's very scary. So I, I originally was sitting on the ode, right, for the opiate due to my daughter because she struggles with opiates. And I also sit with Mom Stop the Harm, and, and so they kind of meet in the middle there often. And my work all began due to my daughter's addiction. But then I found myself, like I said, alcohol use disorder has always been very prevalent and a lot longer than, than opiates. And I was sitting on the committee and we were discussing, you know, some different challenges that we were meeting when the crisis hit. And at the same time is when when my husband was really in the thick of his alcohol use addiction. And so we were having a meeting and I actually broke down in the meeting and I couldn't partake. I just was so overwhelmed. And I felt guilty because I was having a hard time concentrating in the meeting and it, it just consumed me completely and I needed to share. And when I shared with them, they asked questions and it kind of, we talked about my history and they were like, wow, you know what? <laughs> we would love for you to be able to share your knowledge and, you know, your your pain, your grief, what's missing, you know, any information and education that I could lend because, like, here we are and there's just, there's no help. There's not enough. Everyone says that a lot of these systems are broken, but I actually firmly believe that they're just not really all built yet. I do a lot of sharing, you know, I, I have a, a diaries page that I share openly and publicly. People can identify and they don't feel alone where they can reach out and share and, and get some advice or just even talk. When I journal, that's also something that is very therapeutic for me, writing it and letting it go. And probably just in my work, you know, giving back. And even if I can just help one person, that that is a way for me to keep going. Today, we've heard from important voices on the subject of treatment and care for alcohol use disorder, including clinical, lived experience, and policy perspectives. I found it very powerful. What are some of the key takeaways for you, Roland? Thanks, David. Patient goals will vary related to their alcohol use. 
For patients who do not consider abstinence as an immediate goal, a reduction in heavy drinking can help reduce harm. For people with severe alcohol use disorder, managed alcohol programs are an increasingly common harm reduction service. There are also effective pharmacotherapies available for healthcare providers, as well as psychosocial interventions. Please check out our show notes online for more information. Due to the higher prevalence of comorbid PTSD and trauma among people with alcohol use disorder, adopting a trauma-informed approach is particularly relevant for this patient group. Stigma is a significant barrier for patients seeking treatment for alcohol use disorder. Approaching the topic of alcohol use with patients in a non-judgmental, conversational manner can build rapport and trust. Screening and brief interventions are proven to be extremely effective at any point of contact with the health care system. We wanted to thank our guests today, Jennifer Cattell and Dr. Bernie Pauly. And Roland, it was a pleasure to co-host this episode with you. Likewise, David. And to our listeners, you can find links to the studies we mentioned during the show in our show notes. You can also help us create the best possible podcast by filling out a short survey linked to in the show notes. To learn more about the BC Echo on Substance Use, visit bcechoonsubstanceuse.ca. This program was made possible through the financial contribution from Health Canada and Doctors BC. The views expressed here do not necessarily represent the views of these organizations. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use with the support of Cited Media. I'm Dr. Olendingerbrecht. And I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Addiction Practice Pod, coming soon.